Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Adam Butler and Mike Philbrick, Principals at Resolve Asset Management Global. Our esteemed and very special guest is none other than Hugh Hendry, also known as the Acid Capitalist, illustrious founder of Eclectica Asset Management, an award-winning hedge fund manager, market commentator, and in our humble opinion, one of the most eloquent and illuminating observers of absurdly sound intellect. He was one of among a tiny minority of global macro investors in the mid 2000s who had cobbled well-informed and well-investigated views of what was actually happening to the financial system and markets. When we were in the throes of the excruciatingly painful collapse of global financial markets and the period following, Hugh emerged prominently as one of the very few who could cut through the noise and make sense of it all. As for us at advisoranalyst.com, being able to share Hugh's comprehensive views with you played a pivotal role for us as a purveyor of expert financial perspective to the financial industry. So stay tuned. Hugh Hendry is here. If you're liking the show, hit that subscribe button, like us, and by all means, leave comments. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. So Hugh, um, first of all, to say it's extremely exciting to have you with us would be putting it very mildly. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for joining us on Raise Your Average. I mean, I, I think anyone joining and hearing, hearing that intro will be like, who that guy? That guy? <laughs> you know, uh, I've, I'm definitely doing my my best John McAfee type impersonation. Uh, it looks as if I've been I, I'm in prison in St. Bars. Uh, by way of explanation, I am living. Um, I've, I'm living the Truman Show for sure, for sure, and I'm well advanced in in constructing another. Um, great Gatsby style house here on the beautiful island of St. Boss, but I'm, I'm living in the damn thing. And, um, and there you go. Hey, listen, <laughs> I've got it. Work is I, being done. Uh, the, the, the evening is drawing to a close, so we won't be interrupted by noise. Um, and I'd rather have elegance in, 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 in wordsmith than, than anything sartorial. So oh God, I, I'm, I'm hot. I've got no air conditioning. I've got mosquitoes all over me, but. Let's have a go. Oh, Jesus. Perfect. That's your, that's your top horror. Yeah. I, I think it's worth talking about too, where we are, like what, what the date and time is, because during periods like this, the sense of time contracts, right? And so yep. it is 4.10 Eastern on February 28th. And this is the Monday after the... Uh, European community and, and, and the U.S. and Canada and Australia and other major countries took maybe more draconian steps than expected over the weekend in cutting Russia off from access or Russian banking sector off from the SWIFT system. Yeah. And there was pretty fearful response over the weekend and overnight. I think a lot of people were concerned about what was going to happen today. And it's been a bit of a nothing burger. You know, we definitely had, uh, 
a mild spike in commodities. They're now back approaching the levels that they were at when um, Putin first invaded Ukraine. But markets have bounced. They've sustained their strength last week and again this week. And um, so that is the context in which we're having this discussion, right? Because <laughs> it's a bit of a dumpster was, fire. <laughs> yeah. If it was tomorrow, who knows what the context would be? So, so that's sitting at mm. the table. So, you know, obviously we're in very interesting times. What's on your mind? What are you watching, you that you think maybe, um, many analysts and market participants are not focused on at this time, but, but which you think may, um, end up being the most interesting surprise over the next little while. Um, heavens, it, it sounds like the, um, the entrance examination for the Chinese uh, civil service. Tell us everything, you know, where to begin. So a couple of things are coming together at the same time. Um, we've had, we've borne witness, our generation has borne witness to the, arguably the, the greatest bull market ever, which is the, this, uh, four decade rise in us government bond prices, or it's called already the, the declining yields from 16% to, to 0.4 in the midst of uh, the virus in 2020. And we have this presumption that, that nothing lasts forever, that there's ultimately the, there's powers, corrective powers, which then, you know, something happens and change is introduced and, and a new course uh, is set. And so there's much speculation and there's been much speculation for, for quite some time, for uh, numerous years that, um, the treasury market is, is closer or indeed it's in the throes of that change. So that's going on. Obviously, as, as you allude to the, the profound tragic theater, uh, within Europe, uh, but Vladimir, the blunderer, um, wandering around exposes many things. Uh, so yes, hurrah, uh, for seeing a bit of, a bit of spine emerging, um, in reaction from European political leaders. Um, however. When you ask me what I've been focusing on, I've been focusing on the profound catastrophe of strategic sovereign decision-making and planning, um, which pertains to this lot and, and their, and their predecessors, predecessors and their predecessors in the sense that they have allowed themselves to be kind of taken hostage by there's a, there's a profoundly um, uh, well-meaning um, but irrational, uh, ecological movement, which is seeking the absolute abolition of, of all, um, uh, carbon emissions and, and Europe has been quite advanced in, um, making it almost impossible to, to permit and discover, uh, new sources of energy within its domain. So, which is a long way of saying Europe really doesn't produce energy um, and the the error that i lead uh, that i was alluding to really is how it has chosen to address that 
Um, and that is really accepting uh, the cheap bounty of Russian gas as being, you know, the solution. And, and that was profoundly, pr profoundly poor uh, decision-making on behalf of the Europeans because you know, Europe, uh, Russia just has not demonstrated that it is a, a democratic sovereign that one that is worthy of one entering into very long-term contracts of such major import. And there's nothing we can do about that uh, in the sense that we have lost any um, immediate timeline to react. So even the, the you know, the, the headlines of SWIFT and, and the Russian stock market being down and the ruble being down, um, I think beyond the headlines, they're still going to pay them for the gas uh, that, you know, the psycho killer Vladimir uh, at any moment could just switch everything off and, and lights across Europe would go down, uh, which is preposterous. And so the, what the alternatives, uh, there are no, I mean, there are no alternatives. There are no, in terms of the, this generation, there are no alternatives. Um, LNG, okay. They've been too slow. And then it very much, I am bitterly opposed to LNG. LNG is all about, um, is it, it's a solution for the transport of natural gas. Natural gas is very difficult to transport. The natural gas, uh, Henry, Henry Hub, you know, the, the, the most famous market, the American market, um, is a local market. You know, people buying Henry Hub because of Russia don't understand, um, gas markets. Mm -hmm. And I've only really come to understand them, um, uh, recently. Um, so, but the, the appeal of natural gas is that it emits half the carbon of, of coal. And, and so we, you know, as a mature democracy and an educated democracy, we are coming to recognize that the, the window to, 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 to attack the ozone la layer with, with carbon is, has to become less and less, we, which has to become scarce, has to be priced. Um, it's not to say that we can't emit any carbon because I'm sure you gents know there's about 6 billion people on the planet, 6.3 billion, and they maybe consume uh, three uh, barrels of oil in terms of their energy. And, and as a lot, we, on average, we're consuming 13. And as, as the 6 billion inevitably get richer, you know, we, we can't hold them back and, and hold them and surf them and say, no, no more. So we are going to continue to need hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are going to have to go through this increasingly small window of the ozone, if you will. So gas over, gas over coal. So my, my, I say to you, I'm opposed to LNG because, um, you use the, the facility of LNG liquefying it to transport it. But when you do that, everything that it's entailed in doing that actually doubles, almost doubles the gas, uh, the, the carbon footprint. And so you may as well just burn coal. Um, yeah. It's almost a form of, of greenwashing. Like it's this. It is. It is. You're absolutely right. Forgive me for I'm killing uh, mosquitoes. Uh, <laughs> Those are some big mosquitoes. We only have the little ones here, but wow. Well, the, the, the crack noise is, uh, believe me, I am ace at taking these things down. Um, so LA, so they, they don't have the terminal capacity, um, and 
uh, and even on the others. So if you were to take, take it out of the US, um, even then you need to get it to the terminal by the coast. Even then the amount of capital you've got to put in, uh, requires someone to sign a 20 year fixed contract and no one's signing fixed contracts or anything to do with that because we've all gone a bit loony in terms of the, uh, environmental social governance, uh, pact just now. So that's a big problem. Um, and, and so I've been looking at it saying, yeah, and, and, and there's a, there's again, there's an argument with Vlad the loony. He's like, you know, NATO's on my doorstep. Yeah. And that's just paranoia. It's, it's on his doorstep because he keeps doing dumb stunts like this, but you, know, you can imagine the U S would like, would like Russia sitting in Cuba. So let's, let's play that game. Um, of course, with his theatrics, NATO saying, kind of saying that Trump was correct, never a <laughs> comfortable thing to say. Um, I looked at it. NATO collectively spends $1.3 trillion on, on defense. And the presumption is that's going to rise five, six, 10 ish figures. So you're talking about like hundred, hundred to 150 billion. And, and my point is. I would spend a hundred to 150 billion to take on one of the biggest engineering tasks ever taken on by mankind, which would be to build a, a Liberty gas pipeline. And you were, we keep hearing about Nord Stream. I bomb that thing. That thing would be subject to geological disturbances on the seabed and it would be gone. Like I would cut you. I like, if I was running the world and God help us, if I was running the world, I would say my, my European cousins are so weak spit spied. They've got themselves into such a jam that at some point they're just gonna, you know, they're, they're gonna uh, capsize. As so I take away the choice to submit to Vlad's gas, I would just take it out. Pipeline, boom, gone. That pipeline is 1300 kilometers. Uh, we're 3,200 from Newfoundland to Ireland. Um, there's some big, deep, uh, valley rifts in the, the Atlantic, but you know, let's do it. And then you, the sub. What you need to do to move gas is you need pressure. You've got to move it from low pressure to high, high to low. And so you need uh, pressure stations. For, Let's build a thing. You know, it would be a more profound and elegant solution for NATO to say, you know what? You're right. It's kind of, it's, it's an old way of thinking. It's an anachronistic way of thinking to believe that we should have tanks and missiles aimed at each other. Um, let's just. Let's just build, we're going to build a NATO or a Liberty gas pipeline from the, from the States to Europe. Um, and, and you've just lost your superpower. You're the only superpower you, cause you are, you know, an appallingly, uh, corrupt and it's a dictatorship. Um, uh, and the only power you have has been really the stupidity of, of European decision makers giving you that power and at a stroke, even if it takes 10 years, the fact that, you know, we're building it. Gives you an incentive to kind of smarten up. So anyway, that's what I've been thinking. Oh, and but um, so long meandering. Um, Europe, so so gas prices. You know, um, you. I was looking at UK gas prices and converting back to um, the same metric as we use in North America. So if North America is trading four dollars fifty, four sixty, it's it's thirty four, thirty five, thirty six dollars in Europe. I mean, that's a huge order of difference and that ain't coming down. Like I try to int intimidate because there's no short term fix. The only way that comes down is you just accept 
that you're going to take Vlad's gas, which just doesn't seem the, the right option. So it's going to remain that level. And, and so think of the strategic advantage that offers and bestows upon the US, first of all. Um, why would you be making nitrogen fertilizer in Europe? You Nitrogen fertilizer is something which sells between $250 and $400 per ton. Um, shipping costs are like 20 to 40, which is to say kind of immaterial. Uh, North America should, in India every year, kind of puts to tender, hey, we're looking for X tons. That should just all go to the US. Um, and then, and then crucially, um, gas is about half of uh, electricity generation, both everywhere. Like we've, we've pretty much taken coal out. Um, what that's, what, what those price differentials mean in Europe is profound poverty, profound poverty, household poverty. Um, and so what's happening is European governments, um, cannot pass it on. European governments are therefore presently subsidizing it again with the naive supposition that the, in a year's time, the price is going to be lower. But when you look at the forward for next winter, guess what? It's, it's been jacked up to this winter's price because there's no solution. So actually what they're going to discover is this temporary subsidy. Uh, the Italians, I think, have committed somewhere between six and eight billion um, to, to keeping artificially the price back before where it was before the crisis. That's going to be in perpetuity. Um, and if anything, the price is going to go up. So that kind of feels like um, helicopter money, um, which will be accelerating and will be going down. It's a, it's an, it's a wealth transfer and it's, a, it's, a, it's like a wedge payment on top of what you're being paid. And so if this long, epic bull market in sovereigns is to change, if yields are to rise, if inflation is finally to emerge, I suspect we might look back in on this, this tragic theater, which is around us in Europe and look at gas, look at the importance of gas, look at the catastrophic vulnerability of Europe and, and see that this is where, this is where it began. This is where hell, this is where the first true helicopter, helicopter money began. But that's suppositional, Michael. <clears throat> Do you know, I recall, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say. I recall Hugh that that you know when when Yeltsin was in power, and he started this whole you know birth of the oligarchs and opened up the you know opened up the markets in 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 Russia or try, you know started the process of opening up markets. The story of Putin was uh, you know of, of of Vlad the Impaler was was really interesting because um, you know he 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 rose through the ranks of Yeltsin's government by allowing them to believe that he was one of them and that, that he was for the free market and that he was for carrying on, you know, the party line. And, and then soon as he got into power, soon as Yeltsin, you know, faded into obscurity and, and passed away and he was a drunk and, you know, Putin came into power and, and, and almost, almost, uh, immediately started to dismantle Yeltsin's work. It almost feels like he's done the same thing with Europe, where he has sort of lulled everybody into this, you know, oh, just, you know, just buy our gas. It's cheap. Well, you know, we'll eventually we'll build a pipeline and we'll supply you with an endless amount and you have nothing to worry about. And, and, and they all fell for it. And now, you know, we're, we're at this, I mean, it's been a little while coming, but we're at this point where Europe is 
a hostage. He's literally being held hostage by Russia. But it's not, it's, it's, and I, I don't take issue with, with this kind of chameleon. I'll be what you want me to be until I seize power. But as early as 2007, 2007 is all 15 years ago. There's the famous thing about when he was invited to the, you know, we created the G8, you know, that silly Goldman Sachs guy, Jim O'Neill created BRICS. Why did you have Russia in that? It was so absurd. BRICS, yeah, this, anyway, that's the squid for you. But, um, and so BRICS and, and, and Russia, the G8 was created and, and there's the famous, uh, and true story of the, the Putin and Sarkozy meeting the French yeah, premier. Uh, yeah, Sarkozy was, you know, kind of bright, bright smile, full of charisma. And he was in with Vlad saying, hey, you know, like, you gotta stop your kid, you know, sick guy, you know, guess he's buzz. Um, stop killing journalists. Stop, I read, I read with the killing journalists. And, you know, and what's going on with your position with gay people and the, the war in Chechnya? I mean, like, what? I mean, you know, get a grip. And, you know, he, he so this all came about because, um, Sarkozy well, had well, hosted um, a press conference afterwards. And of course the press conference was an hour late in commencing. So he began, he, he began very ashen faced, um, and somber and kind of stumbling on words, not, not the usual Sarkozy. And he began with an apology, just saying, well, you know, I was with Mr. Bhutan. Um, people thought he'd been drinking, uh, shots of vodka. Uh, and the opposite was grotesque. Uh, the opposite was after this, Putin sat like that, or he sat like that, mm -hmm. or he sat like, you know, growling at him. Um, and when he'd finished, when Sarkozy finished, he said nothing. There was like just the most unbelievable pause, just as the tension got higher and higher and higher. Uh, and then Putin finally, um, and he did that kind of jujitsu nonsense. <laughs> And what he was trying to intimate was that his country is enormous and that France is really just an afterthought. And he, and he said to Sarkozy, any more of that, and I will crush you and your little country. Okay. He's like, I, so we can continue on the basis that I can protect you. I can look after you, but I can absolutely destroy you. So we've known. His true identity, the European heads of state have known his true identity, right? That meeting was a clarion wake up call to commit to nuclear, to commit to other sources of pipeline gas other than Russia. That was 15 years ago. We would be very close to realizing it. And yet here we are with Vladimir breaking every rule because he knows presently in the context of Europe, he's invincible. And the point is why stop with Ukraine? Ukraine, oh, exactly. just, uh, mm -hmm. it's just another poor country like Russia. It, uh, and what, are they going to nuke them? It's like, you know, hey, as you say, the, the, the puzzle with Europe is why is it not as dynamic and vigorous as, as the US? And actually the missing part of the jigsaw is, is the energy component. It has no energy, right? And it just feels like, and that kind of just feels like a met up, uh, metaphor for Europe. Imagine. 
plugging your head and kind of waking it up and it would be kind of sexy and things. And they would kind of get an edge and an energy. They would get energy. You were like, plodding, plodding, plodding. It doesn't have that. You know, the Rolling Stones were, they were making songs that, you know, which, you know, make you think about California, not, you know, not the Autobahn. Um, so you can imagine pretty quite well, these idiots have, haven't done it. Why don't I do it? You know, Germany makes lots of cool things that the rest of the world owns. Well, I'll just plug it into my gas network. Boom. The oligarchs, all my friends tell me that, you know, that South Coast down in France is super hot, super chic. Hey, why don't we take that as well? Who's going to stop me? So that's why they, you know, they really have to, they, they just, you know, they have to be very, very what, what do you think that, what do you think the source was to keep the, the European Union so docile and, and on what is in retrospect, a very obvious track and in, in some, you know, sort of perverse irony, you now have your European countries subsidizing energy costs, which of course that subsidy is going to Russia in order for the funding of the invasion of Europe. Like what, what, what was the, what's the brain fart there that just kept them so docile for 15 years? Yeah, I could believe they've been docile for 50 years, you know, yeah, they were yeah. Rebuilt so, by, World War II. Yeah. Yeah. They were rebuilt by the Marshall plan. It was like, Hey guys, let's pull up. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, over there, you do this, you do this. And like, well, well really? And it works. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, another thing, I mean, I, the Sarkozy story is 2007 and I'm saying it was 15 years ago. It was a long time ago, but obviously it is, it's months before the GFC, you know, the great financial crisis and that, and it doesn't get enough attention. Uh, our world changed, uh, dramatically with 2008, I would say it was the, I don't know what to call it, a monetary regime, uh, a world order, um, I, the, uh, some kind of implicit contract that governs the relationship and the movement of capital between sovereigns. But what I'm referring to is the, the Euro dollar market, which is to say this, uh, enormous, almost like dark web conglomeration of private sector banks, which create dollars, which create that print money, you know, the, this mythical notion that the fed has suddenly started fibbing and say, Hey, we do that. You know, um, they were on TV and in the height of the, 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 the virus crisis. So, Hey, we're printing money. You know, we've, we've printed, we've printed like, what did, what was the statistic? We've, we've printed something like a quarter of all the dollars ever in existence. Complete. I mean, fibs lies, not true, but the Euro dollar system does it because they, they make loans. And when you make loans in dollars, you create dollars. And that system began in, um, around about 1965, if not a little bit before in London. Um, and it lasted until 2008, I, I believe. Um, and it hasn't been replaced and it's lost there's, there's, there's little desire within the Euro dollar system to print money, which is to say, to, to give out new credits. And for that reason, whilst GDP globally has surpassed, uh, the levels of 2007, we have not, not attained the trajectory of where we would be, uh, had we not had that crash and we had maintained the trend line in economic growth 
And globally, that looks like $30 trillion. So the, the docile nature is that um, so sovereign governments, with 2008, they went, oh, gee, you know, 2008 and the, and the near bankruptcy of the banking system actually felt, it was one of those events which seemed bigger than their ability collectively to respond. And so they felt, you know, they're not used to that, which is why they went out kind of trying to get scapegoats. Oh, it's hedge fund fault. You know, well, actually it's, it's not. And, and so, uh, they're desperate for, they're desperate to retain, be retained in office. That's harder when economic growth is modest at best. You know, again, if I keep to the French angle. I was living in Paris from 2018 to early 2020. Um, and, um, what's he called? Um, the present incumbent, uh, Macron. Macron. Mm -hmm. uh, Macron. You know, I, I, he tried a, a laudable, um, restructuring of the insanity of their public pension scheme. Um, and kind of Thatcher, right. But at the wrong time. Right. And we had Geely Johns and, and all the rest. Why, why he, why was it the wrong time? He was trying to uh, really bring crunching economic change, um, which would be very much short term, vigorous pain for a lot of long term gain. Uh, but he was doing it within an environment where French bank lending is growing at like two to 3%. Just, just, you're not creating enough prosperity. You're not, you, you come out with that kind of really tough stuff when the, when everyone's doing well, we're like, Hey, you know, your house price is going up. You got a job, you're buying a second car. You're going to St. Bars on holiday. Let's talk about restructuring, you know, and, um, and he, they didn't get their timing right. So there's a little bit, the docility is that they, they've been on their asses. Um, but with the economy just lacking an, an impulse. Uh, from well, we're seeing that now though, right? I mean, we're seeing certainly in the U S I don't know about in Europe, but certainly in the U S we're seeing exactly that environment that you're describing. We had, um, a period of extremely vigorous economic growth. Um, we had very positive consumer sentiment. Certainly a lot of that has, has sort of rolled over as we seen inflation take hold a little bit over the last year, but you know, you've got the market, what, what are we seven, 8% below all time highs. You've got home prices up between 20 and 30% in a lot of metro areas in the U S is this the type of environment do you think in the U S where we could, they could begin to, um, introduce some of these structural changes that Macron was trying at the wrong time in France? Well, except, except for that, whenever we get to one of these moments where we're entertaining the thought of, um, escaping, you know, capturing that escape velocity to allow us to, 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 to leave 2008 behind and attain that, that previous projectile of, of growth. Whenever we kind of get, get around those levels, the Fed comes in and starts talking nonsense and you're know, like 30, 
30-year uh, U.S. mortgage rates. Um, the jack-up in the last four months was enormous. They've almost, not, not quite double, but, you know, really, really, really large. Um, and, and that's one of, you know, one of the hard issues. Uh, this, this whole notion, thankfully there's less of it, but, you know, when the, the Fed promoted and introduced quantitative easing in March 2009, you had uh, celebrated serious economists and historians saying that, you know, this was Weimar and Zimbabwe dollar and the dollar was going to crash and all of this. And also here we are, the dollar's 20, 25% higher. Um, so look, a, a profound uh, misunderstanding of how it operates. However, what I want to say is uh, you can't make references to Weimar because um, there is just, there's never been a case of, of breakout inflation, I want to call it financial anarchy because it's not like two, three percent, it's, you know, it's really um, exploding inflation. You've never really observed it in, um, democracies like ours, uh, where, and, and the principal difference being the sheer magnitude of, of the capital markets, so the, the stock size of capital markets versus the flow of, of GDP, whereby every time there is an inflation fear given the sheer size of those markets and how they reprice, then the economy stops very, very quickly. Um, so I'm not confident to your point that this would afford an opportunity to, to take on a, a lot of, um, structural reforms. How did we get so trapped? Cause I mean, I feel in so many ways that we are trapped as a political system and as a global financial system. And, and I also want to. I want to touch on whether sees this as well and whether he's chosen now as a, an especially convenient time to take this type of action. But how did he get so trapped such that the financial markets are now the tail that wags the economy dog and that we have so few options about how to make structural changes to enhance long-term prosperity. And instead we have to keep taking steps that support capital markets in the short term and trade off against the type of investments and steps that, that would lead to greater long-term sustained prosperity. Yeah. I mean, we're taking painkillers rather than medicine that would address the other right. causes, you know, um, I, here we are talking about, uh, Put down, uh, but the, the people I hold responsible in terms of answering your question are the, are the Chinese, um, which is a little bit unfair. It's not exclusively Chinese, uh, the mercantilist system, but given the sheer size imported of China, um, and, and their relentless pursuit of mercantilism, um, I think it, it has taken away, I think uh, it, let me see, it is the reason why we have failed to achieve escape speed velocity and attain that level GDP, which where we were heading to bef before the, the mess of, um, 14 uh, years ago, that China takes that away from us. And it does so because why does it do it? It does so because we have, um, 
we've got a dirty float. So the, the two largest, most kind of dynamic nations just now in the world, China and the US, and their affairs are governed by something which is uh, determined in Beijing, uh, which is to say the one uh, cross rate with the US dollar. And that that cross rate should be, you know, were it not um, politically determined with their kind of closed capital account, etc. Um, I would hazard a guess that that rate would not be 632 and there would be a lower figure, which is to infer that the renminbi would be stronger and maybe it would be five, maybe it would be 450, maybe it'd be 430, pick a number. Um, because there would be a number which would kind of price in the, uh, the, the great gains that they've enjoyed in, in productivity. But that's not happening. And that's a problem internally in China, because, um, if it was, if the renminbi dollar was 430 rather than 630, then buying high tech or whatever us products would be more attainable to 400 extra million people, but it's not. And so, uh, they never attain the income levels that their productivity merits. Okay. And then, and so they have to, they have to save more. So they're saving more rather than spending. You, we, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the statistic, but consumption, um, in China is just on another parallel universe to, to what we're accustomed to, you know, it's about 20 points of GDP less. That's kind of why. And on the other side, we continue to hollow out, um, societies around the world. Now it's middle-class jobs, but the old goal, um, to China. Why? Because it boosts profits, right? And when you boost profits, guess what? Stock markets go higher. It's just all kind of linked. And, and then if you're taking jobs out of the rest of the world, so if you're displaced and you lose your job, first thing you do is you raise your savings. You don't do it. Like you don't sit down and plan it. It just happens automatically. You've got no less money coming in and you've got discretionary spending that you're uh, non-discretionary spending that you have to meet. And so, you know, that's what happens. So that's, I think, um, that's been like a handbrake that has taken away the traditional reaction to loose, lower, cheaper money. It's, it's, it, it may not as well have happened. It's just been an irrelevance with China, China sitting there. Now I can see it coming to an end, but in a manner, which I'm not sure helps any of us, I can see it coming to an end because the, 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 the Chinese have made just a, a, a profound error in allowing, um, you know, a credit bubble on their watch to inflate Chinese property to a level where it's now greater than us property values. That's only ever happened one other time, which was at the end of the 1980s with Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, their properties, their stock of overvalued property is four times the, the flow of GDP. That is a profoundly vulnerable level. Um, we've had COVID and they have not, you know, again, it's a kind of Russian like, you know, they. China gives you more prosperity 
but it, you know, it takes away your, your civil rights as much as, as Russia does. Um, but that, you know, the, um, there, something's going to happen with that. And, and so I, oh, I, so what I was, I was meaning to say was, and with their COVID response, you know, it could have been, you know, wrapped in, you know, the, the American flag. It had to be, you know, something that, that was derived from the, the fruits and endeavors of Chinese laboratories and, and that stuff just hasn't worked. So we, we Omicron came through with everyone kind of vaxxed up and, and if it allowed us to hit, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I'm supposing it, it seemed to allow us to hit herd immunity. And the thing now kind of like feels like it's behind us. Whereas in China, they fear anything with the notion of herd immunity because they don't have the, the, the vax protection. So they're still, they're really, really, their, their economy is still shackled with those restrictions of zero COVID and the property market is seriously distressed. And more than that, this Euro dollar system, which truly creates money is based on collateral. And there would have been hundreds of no hundreds of billions of kind of dollars being created out of thin air based on collateral values, based on Chinese property values. And that thing's all unwinding. And you don't see that with, it's not regular banks, it's all dark web stuff. So there's so much. And so that's what it, that, so yeah, I, so I keep coming back. I mean, Hugh, it sounds like, I mean, like just listening to what you're saying, it sounds, you know, like the pillars that are supporting the European economy are so easily, you know, potentially being crippled by, by this Russian invasion or, and by this Russian sort of dominance over energy. And then, you know, on our side of the world, you know, we're, we're, we're at risk because, because of the Chinese and the way that they've gone about hollowing out our economy by offering cheaper labor and, and being uncompetitive in terms of the currency. And it, it looks like, like, you know, both of, you know, both of those command economies are threatening the Western world for one reason or another, right? They, they, I mean, because they maybe well, I'll in push the future, back a little bit on that. I mean, yes, certainly. I mean, it's a possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen. And no, no, I'm, I'm pushing yeah. back on, on, on the blade. I mean, I, I think yeah. we in the West had, um, just as much to do with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In pursuit of shareholder value maximization, embraced globalization, we um, vendor financed Chinese growth in a, on their mercantilist model. And we have seen, we're, we're sort of at the asymptotic part of, of that dynamic at the moment. And, and as a result, you know, we're seeing some of the cracks in that in the Chinese property market. Um, but we're complicit because, you know, at any given time we could have opted for freedom and broader prosperity. And instead we opted for financialization, and, um, borrowing prosperity from the future in order to fund consumption in the present. You know, we have at every point along the way made decisions that kicked, that kicked every meaningful can 
down the road. And, and so that's why I want to sort of circle back to whether Putin, maybe almost certainly we're giving too much credit to Putin strategically here, but it does seem like the most extraordinarily opportunistic timing for him to engage in this way with oil inventories at, you know, across the entire spectrum of crude products at nine-year lows, um, base metal inventories around the world at five, six, seven-year lows, um, and, you know, multiple CPI prints well above five, six percent in the U.S., which puts the Fed potentially in a hard spot. Um, it wouldn't take too many levers being pulled by Putin on the energy side to make the Fed and the ECB's policy decisions in nearly impossible over the next three to six months. So, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious whether you think that there is, is something there from a strategic standpoint and, um, how we might hedge some of those risks if, in fact, that is the case. I the, the, I, I enrage lots of people because I, I, I st still such an advocate for, I think the U.S., I, I call the U.S. a, a very ben benevolent um, empire in that, you know, uh, it, it was attacked by Japan. Uh, it destroyed Japan in response. And, uh, but then it rebuilt Japan. Um, it really didn't want to get involved in Europe, but ultimately did the right thing and got involved in the Second World War. Uh, and then rebuilt the damn place. Um, it kind of looked askance at the profound catastrophes on, on Chinese humanity by their various dictators. Um, and when they finally um, kind of asked for help in the sense of being um, allowed to enter the, our world, the world trade system. We said, we said yes. So the America said yes, knowing that in the short term, it would, it would weaken America, knowing that jobs would be lost, but having the foresight to recognize that rich with richer neighbors, but that that pie expands more and the richer you are, the kind of less bellicose you are. Um, so, but obviously. Within, within all of those noble intentions, there's been massive screw ups to say the least. Um, in terms of Vladimir hitting at a, a very opportune time, um, the world feels like the 1970s. We have an energy crisis you know, back then. It was, it was at OPEC. It was a political thing. It was essentially, um, an act of war, an act of aggression, or it was brought on by the act of war, the, if you remember the. Uh, the Israeli war or with its yeah, the Yom Kippur war. Mm -hmm. Um, you had Russia going rogue and, and you're know, going into Afghanistan uninvited and, and against all everyone's intention. Um, you had the Iranians taking the American embassy hosted, um, you know, and the, you know, the Mullahs, the Mujahideen were like. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think it was a suicide mission. Like, we're really going to get our ass kicked. <laughs> you, you just don't take down embassies, certainly not American embassies. And 
we had Jimmy Carter in and he went, can we, can we, can we please negotiate? Can we, can you bring them back? And they went, whoa, what, what? You mean you ain't, you ain't kicking our fannies here? And you had, you know, 40 years of just escalation, which is so, so important that we don't like Biden is, who knows who he is. He's like the Wizard of Oz, but um, we have to hope that there's more stiff backbone and that it's not, hey, please, can you send our, our hostages back? It's like, we're bombing Nord Stream, right? We're building a pipeline. We are just cutting you out of, you, we, you, you're despicable and we shall Can't see. I think that, I think that's my point, right? That strategically that is an action that they would take in, in different times, but, but because of the inflation situation, because of where rates are, because of where markets are in terms of the average, the weighted average, like cap weighted average duration of the S and P, for example, can the central bank afford for um, rates to rise, can they afford for five-year, five-year inflation expectations to rise? Can they afford for mortgage rates to rise more substantially? Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like if they were to take the steps that are necessary to, to be firm against this type of, um, of action, that it would potentially cause a collateral cascade. And, you know, they, you know, we've had 12 years of action that shows that, you know, the Fed and, and Western governments will let everything around them burn to preserve the value of the S&P and, and to ensure ever-rising home prices. So do you think they have it in them? Do they have the backbone to take the steps that are necessary? given the consequences and maybe I'm overstating the consequences. So I'll, I'll you... yeah, I think, I think fair, fair point, but yes, the, I mean, do they have it within them? I don't. It's a bit like, you know, the U S ambassador being asked questions about, you know, Putin just now, she's like, I don't know. I mean, the steps he's taking now are just beyond all rational kind of power broking. We, we don't know where we are with this guy now. So, but with that said, um, U S has the biggest strategic stockpile of damn oil, like in mankind. Okay. Use it all. Right. And we have, you know, the, our friends in the middle East, right? Saudi, you know what? We are taking all support away from you guys. If you are not pumping, there's no way the oil price has to rise. Shale, shale oil in the U S you know, you, they overproduce and they're like, okay, we're not, we're, you were being very disciplined. It's like, ah, guys. Back, 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 you know, stop producing like 24 seven, get the stuff out. The energy's there, right? It's there. It's, it's whether you have that American hostage thing in Tehran, it's how you respond to it. It's there. If you've got resolve, if you're aggressive, boy, you know, could you, with the rest, basically the rest of, um, OPEC is, is us friendly these days. It's like, you know, and you guys you got have the potential for Iraq to come online too. Mm. It's like, it's, so like, like it, 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 it's, it's funny because like, you know, with Carter, his hand, you know, he, he, he was a sort of a weak hand at, in terms of, of how he dealt with the, the hostage situation. And did, but did that have to, did that have to do with the fact that the end of the Vietnam war came so, so, you know, it ended so badly for America that there was such a strong 
anti-war sentiment that, that it crippled the ability to make that kind of policy decision to say, we're going to go in there and we're going to bomb the hell out of the, uh, Iranians and we're going to take our hostages back. I mean, it, it well, took, uh, it took, a, it took, yeah. you know, it took that, it took that, that, um, that Canadian film crew, that, you know, fake Canadian film crew to, uh, you know, help some of the hostages escape. Right. Mm. And then, mm. and then, uh, you know, within hours of Reagan taking the office, they were released because suddenly what the Iranians were, they, they, they weren't scared of, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, deflated Jimmy Carter. They were scared of Reagan. They, you know, there was also the back channel, but they were scared of what Reagan would do because he was, he, you know, he was more, you know, of a hawk yeah. when it came to, yeah. to war. Well, just the fact that Reagan got elected was a sign from the American people that yeah. things had changed. And, uh, you know, so part of this is crisis necessity change. Uh, when, when the, uh, crisis is large enough, the, the, uh, will to act will be there. And until it's large enough to suffer the consequences of an action, you'll continue on a road that is one where your response is muted. Granted, the response currently has probably been, uh, more than most expected. Um, but I, I wonder, so we, we, when we started, uh, Hugh, you were talking about sort of these major forces that were coalescing. One was, you know, yields going to zero. The other was the European theater and the energy policy in Europe. Um, I wondered, and we've kind of touched on some others, the financialization of the economy, sort of the deglobalization and, and, you know, um, uh, re reshoring of supply lines. But what are the other, are there any other large scale sort of major pieces of this puzzle that you were, you were going to share as in building this sort of mosaic of what's going on? I, I mean, like just one thing I have a touch point, which is, you know, this insistence that we, we say equities have been in a bubble and, and certainly when you look at market cap to GDP levels, that, um, that, that, that feels, it feels out. But that's kind of like making the same error we did with quoting debt to GDP levels and say, hey, you know, or deficit, government deficit figures to GDP levels. Um, if interest rates reset to zero, it kind of changes all of that function, you know? So, um, I really still push back when people tell me equities are in a bubble, um, because the majority, and when I say majority, always like selling 90% and I want to say much more than 90% of stocks and, and the major blue chip, what we used to call blue chip names, they traded price levels that prevailed in the 1990s. And indeed this year, the S&P is only off 8% because most of them are up and, and the ones that are down are what are, what I call riskless stocks, which are deemed to be commercially devoid of risk. Um, such as Apple, and if you're in an environment where you price the risk-free towards zero, there's rationally no outer limit of yeah. where the market cap of that stock should be, which is why it was the first to a trillion and then two trillion and three trillion. Um, and so I think we've got to be, so I, that's why I, I can still understand where the market is, even in the face of uh, the European hostilities, you know, back to that notion of Boyer, have we really, is this, this actually strategically really great point for the Russians to strike, et cetera. It's like, I still think, no, 
really, because I mentioned China's, you know, is slowing and has the risk of actually having a full, a full blown recession. Europe now, of course, has just hit a major speed bump, um, and the legacy will be higher, higher gas prices. That's not a global phenomenon. That is again, a regional phenomenon. And so in the States, um, that, that could translate itself into a profit transfer to, to large industrial sectors of the U S um, you know, so U S citizens will not be paying higher gas prices for their, their utility bills. The utility bills might be higher, but that will be a function of, of weather patterns and the like, you know, and how much storage has been prepared for the season. Um, and you, you can see how, um, long-term rates go back into that kind of 2% being the cap and gravitate back to about one and the stock market's going to be just more of the same. Um, so that doesn't change what, what, what the bad thing about all of that is, um, is that we have a generation without assets and yep. I'm tempted to kind of talk about <clears throat> cryptos, the crypto thing. And I'm only tempted because there's very little I can say about it, except I have a curiosity in that could it, you know, cause then I am talking about, we had the gold standard as a means of, uh, sovereign nations talking to each other with, with trade flows and, and a, a system for regimenting trade flows, which was the gold system and the, and the actual physical transfer of gold. And then gold itself was high powered money, which would create credit in parts of the world and it would take high powered money away from parts of the world. And that system failed. It failed spectacularly at the end of the 1920s. It was replaced by bread and woods. And then bread and woods was replaced by the euro dollar standard and euro dollar standard blew up, you know, 15 years ago. And there's something out there and it's getting closer to us, which will be this, what I'd call a fourth turning point contractually in the sovereign affairs um, of, of the world. Um, when you go speculating, trying to find a system, it, it needs to, to, it needs to create it, it, and, and I think we were talking about, you know, uh, Vladimir coming to power under Yeltsin. And again, there was a bit of Reaganism, Thatcherism, whereby there was a voucher based economy. And I think this is kind of where I want to kind of leap is we kind of need something of a voucher base. Now voucher of course can be used interchangeably with token. I don't know where I'm going with that uh, right. with the <laughs> NFTs and stuff. And it all sounds ridiculous just now, but you know, so, um, the, before the chaos or amidst the chaos of a, of a liberated, you know, Russian Federation, the, they went round the doors and, and they gave you a certificate. Hey, you know, you. You put up with all that crazy stuff for 80 years, but actually, did you know that you own a bit of the post office and you own a bit of the energy company and you own a bit of the bank and here's, here's, here's certificates. Uh, but of course the problem was people weren't educated when the UK did that between 1980, 1986, I want to say they spent yeah, tens of millions of dollars on advertising campaigns to ordinary people. And I was one of, my parents were one of the ordinary people. My father was a truck driver saying, Hey, this is a good thing. You know, this, this is, this is really valuable. You know, keep, keep with it. 
they didn't do that in Russia, uh, which was a mistake. And the oligarchs then kind of seized it. This happened in all those, even the satellite, you know, the Czech Republic, uh, the, the billionaire guys just went around buying them all. Uh, and so it never, and that was the problem. We never, those countries got into a mess and then embraced these hard guys again, because they didn't have this asset. They didn't, they weren't enriched by the change. The change just meant just more chaos. And like, you know, at least the trains ran on time, that kind of silly fascist kind of thing. And if we're not caref careful, we're going to get there. So again, I want to try and seize two kind of issues that the global warming, warming thing, um, this whole carbon thing, and let's talk about how we, and of course we could go, we could do NFTs and we could, we could do the metaverse, but let's kind of do it within carbon. So Europe has a, has a, after 20 years of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying, I mean, they really did persist and they're to be congratulated for persisting. So we're giving European policymakers a hard time. Now let's congratulate them. Their carbon uh, permitting scheme works, you know, and it's now we've got price discovery um, and the price is going up. And so we are in the throes of creating scarcity with regard um, to the depletion of the ozone. So that's great. And other countries should just copy it. You know, I don't know why they're not. They should just copy it. It, it works. But within that, and it's not given mention, is that uh, in, in setting it up in over 20 years, all, but you could see almost a trillion dollars of subsidy was given to European industrial companies in the sense that you know, there, there are, heavens, what are they called? Um, but anyway, for, for, for those 20 years, uh, all of those industrial companies caught under that regulatory um, permitting umbrella were given re Never a dull moment. Uh, they were they were given <laughs> they were given um, they were given free permits, free rights to pollute, and now the system's beginning to work because they are withdrawing those permits, and speculators like us are actually in withdrawing them, seeking profit as well, and so the system's getting tight. Um, but in order to uh, prevent too much like rapid and crunching and disruptive change, arguably like what happened with Yeltsin, they were very benevolent and, and, and patient. And they basically gave these tokens to the corporate sector. And it's only now having transparent showing they're going, look, you know, we've been patient with you. We've given you something really valuable. Now we're telling you time's up and we're going to, you know, you're really going to have to change your practices. So my point being, why don't we do that? So if we, if we wish to solve for the carbon problem globally, we're only going to do it if we can bring ordinary folk into the equation, uh, where, where they own the problem and where they can do something about the problem and where there's a reward for them doing something about the problem. And it dovetails nicely with this whole, hey, and the same, at the same time, we create assets for people who might not have assets. Okay. And so my, my point would be, we can easily determine the carbon footprint of your average household, you know, um, 
and you basically give, say, five years worth of permits or tokens to each household for free. It, it's a form of quantitative easing. Now, it really would be money creation. It would be very, very effective. And you say to them, listen, you go, we're going to give you another three years of a pass where we're going to keep issuing you for the next three years. So we're giving you five, you know, a legacy five, and we're going to give you another three years. So you've got eight years of these tokens, which would amount to several thousand dollars per household. And then you're going to say, but from now on, we're actually, you know, you, know, you do a tax return. We're going to insist that you do a, a carbon return. Now you can pay for your carbon tax by uh, giving us back those tokens that we gave and it costs you nothing. Or actually you could try and shrink and reduce your carbon consumption, whereby you retain more of those permits. And let me tell you, those permits are only going up in volume. Um, that's imaginative. You know, that's something that, you know, we could take on. It's mind blowing. Uh, so is that a that... level or is that the household level? Just, just to be, I, I really think it's an interesting concept, but mm -hmm. so are, are we giving these credits to non-homeowners as well? Or is it only um, to homeowners to incentivize a reduction in? We'd ha yeah. It, it would have to be at the citizen level, wouldn't it? I guess. Yeah. Um, for sure, you know, you're, you're taxed at the citizen level, not the household level. Um, so, you know, there's, I'm kind of throwing things up in the air, you know, I'm a provocateur no, of ideas, uh, but, but you can kind of, it wouldn't be that hard, you know, we just kind of roughly estimate the carbon footprint, you know, and, um, you, you, you book an airline ticket, you do it with the, the airline has to record that you, you took that journey. And so that's your carbon footprint, you know, and it, and it gets. You know, so yes, there's, you're creating another internal revenue service to, for doing this stuff, but, um, so that's something I, I'm still really attracted to the, the, the NFT and the metaverse thing where, and I think our generation, we're still really poo-pooing it. We were like, oh, blinking nonsense. What someone spent 2000 bucks on a pair of virtual sneakers. You guys are all crazy. And it's like. <laughs> but you know, for 15 years, we've created an economy that's out of reach for the many, especially the young. It's, I know, it's just unattainable. And so it's no surprise that they are recreating our world in a manner that they can afford it. Mm. And you ally that to what, so once you create a parallel system and it, and it's it's creating assets, you know, that crypto was clever because, um, it, it had speculation at its heart, which encouraged adoption, you know, again, make, make people, make people rich and like, I love it. Give me more, give me more. You know, again, that's, you know, Thatcherism worked because you know, my, my parents were allowed to buy, uh, the housing stock, you know, the public housing stock, and they were able to buy it below market and then enjoy the uplift. And sure enough, you know, my parents were always decorating drives. I mean, here I am decorating in St. Bonaparte, <laughs> you know, but uh, they were always decorating. You know, they, they had pride in, in the house. That was the whole political imperative. Again, Russia's in the place where it is because it missed that leap because, you know, the smart, the, the robber barons robbed the people and, the, and they took away that ownership. And so 
we we need every bright head in the world is devoting all of their energy to the end, the digital enterprise because it's really the only way they're going to create assets. And then with assets, who cares? Actually, you know, let Apple go to four or five trillion dollars. Let let, let the, the 10 year bond yield sit at 20 basis points. Let it go negative, you know, because the problem with all of that just now is it only benefits kind of us. But if you've created this huge meta, this, this alternative plane, and it's pushing them all up as well, then that the digital will feed back. You know, so once you, um, there was a great article in the Financial Times at the weekend on, sure, not great, it was okay. Um, but it was on, there was the, the bankrupt, bankruptcy of Forever 21, which was a kind of, I'm less familiar with that brand, but I imagine that as being like Yara, um, <clears throat> delivery cheap, cheap, cheap yeah, product. It's a teen, young, a teen brand. Yeah, teen I'm brand. very and, familiar having two yeah. teenage, having had two teenage yeah. daughters. Yeah. I have supported Forever 21. I can't believe they're out of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're back in business, baby. Oh, they're back in business. All right. Reorganized. They're, <laughs> they're, well, they're on, they're on the metaverse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, designed, designed a, 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 a store, their best selling item. They won't tell you how many, but they reckon like they've sold over a million black beanie hats, um, digital things. Um, and then when they hit a certain level, they're going to then sell them physically because they've become such a riot success online. Um, and then the, you know, like I, I'm looking to explore that. I, I want, you know, there's, there's an opportunity, there's a financial motive for me, but there's also a give back notion of creating a tribe, being the tribal leader and, and seeking to create assets that the, the tribe own and are free to trade. Um, you know, my point I've got, you know, I'm a bit, I'm always rambling and, and forgive me, but you know, when I, when I, when I hit, when I hit my, my space, my rhetoric is, is, is pretty hot and there's so many bozos on the internet with like 300, 400,000 subscribers more talking about finance and their, their bozos. And I'm sitting there at 9,000. I'm releasing a book this year and I've got various media projects. What if I'm actually half a million, yeah, I'm 45,000 on Twitter. What if I'm half a million? And what if you've actually subscribed to my tribe now via a token? Um, got to think that that's you, you're going. Your speculation, your pioneering status is going to be rewarded by what I do to try and lift my profile. So again, that's kind of, these are kind of positive things. So crypto, the worst thing about crypto is, um, the, from, I, I spend my like pricing things, you know, show me anything and I'll price it. Show me Bitcoin and the derivatives and like. Where is it today? Is it 38,000? Okay. For me, and it's failed twice, 70,000. Um, for me, it could, it could be trading back at 20 or 15,000 or 10,000. Equally, it could trade a hundred. If it does a hundred, it could, it, it could double. But how much of my wealth do I want to denominate in something where I just, where the, the wides of my imagination are so stark? I mean, 
it's, it, that doesn't exist with the dollar. So for, for all the dollar's issues, I'm very happy, very happy. I'm, I'm tolerant of denominating wealth in dollars or euros, but not crypto. And so we, we can kind of get into a lost line trap there, but you know, the first modern money was Renaissance Italy, 14th century, I want to say, you know, the Medici's and, and the like, and that was, and, and of course, remember that was in response, uh, to the failure to, 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 to find and profitably, um, transfer, uh, silver from South America into, into Europe. And so you'd had, you'd had a hundred years of depression, which created the need for a new system, which was, uh, which was an, an open ledger accountancy system. You know, it was a, a T balance sheet, you know, you're on this side and you get credit and da, 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 da. That's what cryptos do digitally. Um, the, the, another interesting thing is that the depression is a word that has vanished. It's an old fashioned word. It doesn't feature in newspapers. I, I remember being interviewed on CNBC by Marie, what was she called? Maria Butter. Art Romo? Art Romo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that is uh, going back. Ju- that is going back. I just come off a flight from JFK <laughs> and I was on the, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and my wife was with me and my wife was with the hairdressing, whatever, you know, the makeup. And, and I said, depression with, yeah, without thinking about it. And the, the hairdresser go, went, oh, he said the word you're not allowed to say. And, and it's funny that why I can't recall the last time I saw the word depression in a newspaper, you know, um, I would say we've been in a depression, a depression is when you have not reattained the previous growth in prosperity. We failed, we failed that. And I've mentioned culprits. I've said China, um, is, is a, is sand in, in our system. There are many other culprits I'm sure of it. Um, do we need a hundred years before we, be, we, be, be, before we, we change? I, you know, I think, I think change excels. But it's a strange thing, right, Hugh? Because I mean, how do you measure prosperity, right? I mean, if you measure it using the, the ruler that many average citizens measure it in, they're seeing their 401ks at all, at or near all time highs, mm-hmm. their home prices at or near all time highs or up by 20, 30%. Uh, year over year, they're feeling rich. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I would sort of define prosperity as achieving a level of um, innovation or uh, productivity growth, right? But that's not what we have been striving for. And that's not how we've been measuring prosperity at least 10 years, at least since 2007. So, I guess I'm just, I'm curious, how are you defining prosperity? Because I think it must be a little bit different than how mo- many people would define it. But I, I, I want to say that, um, you are describing as a subsector, a fortunate subsector of society. I, I want to say that you're defining an age group of society. And, and I think all of the very positive or positive, but all of the, the prosperity ideas that you allude to are being captured by people like no one below their forties has captured them mm. unless they've traded crypto in the last 10 years. And that's why they've got this, 
um, yeah, religion for the thing. And, and of course, prosperity is not share prices going up. Um, pro, you know, pro, prosperity is that, that innovation. We live in an innovative time, you know, but we live in a, I can't, I don't know if I can, if I'm allowed to say this, but can you say that, you know, the, the form of the return on innovation when it's, when it's a platform is that, um, the returns all go to the winner, you know, that it's just not shared. Like, you know, Facebook, Facebook goes from nothing to a billion dollars, uh, to a trillion dollars, boom, or, you know, likewise Google, etc. that they, they don't spawn, uh, you know, we used to have innovation used to be moving from canals to rail, to railroads, but you would have 20, 30, too many railroads before ultimately you had four. Um, the innovation that we've seen since the NASDAQ bubble and crash has been a winner takes always like one iteration and you don't bring on competition. You own it and you don't own it in Mississippi. <laughs> you own it Glob across the world. Yeah. Globally. They buy your competition because there's such cheap cost of capital and <clears throat> high, such high margins because they, their profitability is dominated by Metcalf law, Metcalf's law and Network effects, right? So it network effects. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so, um, but I, I, I have to say, I, um, I still, I feel like when I look at, um, I, I'm fascinated when you can buy major corporate names at, at the same price as prevailed 25 years ago. I feel like we got that behind, you know. I'm glad I didn't feel like that 25 years ago, because by now I'd be like, I hate these dumb things. They never go up. Um, and there's, there's something, so I get it. I'm a, I'm a time investor. Fantasy made up stupid, whatever, um, investor, but I'm a time investor. Um, the time is, is it the, the evolution of time and what happens with the passage of time is something that fascinates me. Um, you know, the fact that the Dow peaked in 29 and it took 25 years to surpass the nominal price high. Um, the fact that it repeated that, um, in the sixties to 82, uh, I think you've got to define it more in real terms. Um, but it was a kind of 25 year window with the 25 year thing. Uh, I even had the audacity to, to buy. Well, one touch 40,000 strike options on the Nikkei. And I think I did that in heaven. So let's work this out. Um, so it peaked. Um, yeah, I did that in 2000. Oh, what is it? 2007, 2008, because I, I guess I was expecting 25 years would be 2015. And so I had some, some time, um, Got to 2015, we did, I don't think we've seen 40,000 yet, <laughs> uh, but that one's broke. But, but that, that time frame is coinciding, you know, it's, uh, you typically have somewhere around 25 years as when you get into your maximum income generation, where you're accumulating savings, they're going into the stock market, they're building into uh, the nest egg that your house that you bought 25 years ago has gone up like two X, but it over a duration of 25 years. Um, and so when I see stocks that have done nothing for 25 years, that's, 
it, it beg, you know, it, it, it begs answers. Uh, so these are the, in, these are the sort of core industrials, the, are you talking about sort of the Exxon Mobiles, the Procter Gambles? And I know you don't want to, you don't have to give us any specific names, but sort of maybe industries, you know, what, what industries are dominated by Yeah. Companies? Yeah. It would be mostly sick, but you, you said Procter and Gamble, Procter and Gamble, um, got caught, gets caught up a little bit in, in being, uh, in being commercially riskless. You see, we, because we went through COVID where you had you just the most immediate and most dramatic and, and biggest drop in economic activity in history. Um, it was a great observatory t- tower, you know, reveal businesses, the, the true nature of businesses, you know, so Apple business was intact. McDonald's profits were flat at worst, arguably high, you know, it was a treat to go to the drive-in. You could go in the drive-in remote and go home. Procter and Gamble, you, you ordered, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, that's why there's maybe 10% of the market kind of still, um, Facebook was deemed to be riskless. You know, so it's dropped 50%. P- uh, PayPal was deemed to be riskless. It's dropped 60%. But I have to say, I'd be buyers of those things. I mean, I, without knowing much and without having yeah, the poop wish to jump into bed, bed with Zuckerberg and the like, but when I've had 50, 60% decline on the trends that they were showing and when it's so immediate, a- anyone who traded NASDAQ between 1998, 99, 2000, uh, 50% pullbacks were, were common. They were almost like the springs, which then propelled you into the absurdity of an even higher high. Oh. And, and I, I have to say that if the Russian thing, if the, the, there's a macro reset going on just now, it was, it predates uh, the Russian, the European energy thing. And you know, it was, it was the fact that we were, we were seeing 40 year highs in inflation prints, uh, which was encouraging, um, the fed to talk to the near certainty that was going to raise rates. Um, and of course this always on, I, th- I, I, th- I think one could say unprecedented that the, the, the two, the, the whole shape of the sovereign bond curve flattening dramatic, I mean, always very rarely does it, does the two ten spread go to zero, but you, you know, it was getting down to about 36, 36 basis points or so. And then even, even hike rates, um, yeah, the market's doing it all. It's doing it all. Um, so yeah, yeah I, yeah, I, yeah, there's no secret to the names that I'm, I'm just, you know, afford. Uh, you know, that, that electric F, F1 truck, that's a mean machine. Yeah. People want that, you know, just got to be able to make the damn thing in, in volume. But, um, but yeah, you look at that price, um, um I want to say Boeing, but Boeing is very, very particular. You know, Boeing had the mother of all glitches, obviously with that disastrous, yeah. um, yeah. uh, introduction. Now it's all over Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> yes. It, well, yeah. I, believe me that, um, yeah. so, so I've, I develop uh, property in St. Paul's and um, I'm asset rich, but not very cash flow rich. Um, so I don't really swing around in the market, but boy, is this, you know, the story of the glitch, the glitch is the greatest thing ever for investors. You know, we've spoken a lot about Vladimir and stuff. Let's talk about kind of making money. Um, the, the glitch isn't, you, you live for a glitch. The, the glitch that I had 
I remember having the Horns Reef, the Horns Reef fiasco. That was the great glitch of, of my career. And it fell upon Vestas, a Danish uh, wind turbine manufacturer. And they committed to this project um, and it got a lot of hype. I can't remember the details now, but cost inflation, it was just a disaster. Or maybe they, they, they cited it where there was no wind, but I don't think it was like that. They were just, the, the technology was innovative, the cost delivery uh, and the, the price collapsed. 80% price collapse, boom, unforgiving market because it had been, it'd been a go-go stock. It was rated and is, and then they, they had a glitch. Um, if you could own, which is to say, if you could understand that it's a glitch, which would, you know, this is, this is the, this is the Warren Buffett 1960s American express when they were a conglomerate and they ended up with an investment in olive oil, Italian olive oil. And there was a great scandal because it got tainted and it was poisonous. And American Express was on his ass because, you know, they were clearly killing people, you know, and you kind of, you could look at it and you could try and kind of, um, you could take the, the now out of, out of tomorrow and see that you, you had to, that it would survive and it would engage this. And so you Boeing, the price devastation, which is. Correct, because it was a leveraged entity, um, but the price devastation is, is there the glitch nature. I feel comfortable with the glitch nature because in 10 years time and 20 years time, it's still going to be Boeing when it's going to be Airbus, you know, and, and the European, uh, the American government has demonstrated they, you know, they might be idiots in terms of whoever is responsible for that introduction, uh, pretty much they will been cleared out, um, and that business will heal itself. And very rarely are you given the opportunity to buy something, which for sure will be with us in 25 years time. And for sure will be the, either the dominant or the oligopoly supplier all aircraft. Um, so, you know, and in a world where every financial asset has been inflated to kingdom come by the, the fed supposed printing press, well, actually the bullying is, is an opportunity, but it's, you know, it's literally something you, you commit to without looking at it. There's something, you know, you might as well put it on Elon Musk's first rocket to Mars and ask that, and then if it ever gets back, then look up the price of Boeing, but I'm pretty sure the price of Boeing would be like, you know, six X what, what you, what you paid. I mean, I'm not recommending Boeing, but I'm recommending a kind of way, a way of thinking. Uh, contrast that with IBM. IBM was the Apple of its day. And when I say of its day, I mean in the late twenties, it was back there. If you had bought the perfect, perfect vision, if you had bought IBM at, at its absolute low, it's a bit like if you'd bought Amazon, you know, Amazon fell from 115 in the Nasdaq crash of 1994 to March, 2002. Uh, 2002, it fell from something like 115 to eight. I mean, well, you know, so if you'd bought IBM at the equivalent in the, the, the route of 29 to 32, and if you've held on and you sold it when the Dow reclaimed that nominal or pierced the, the previous nominal high in 1954, your compound growth rate would be 10% per annum, which is good, but it's, it doesn't 
that's not the rate that make that turns you into a legend. Yeah. It's not, you know. And that's you good perfect vision. You bought it at the absolute bottom and you're selling it now with the market right back at its high. Okay. Why? Because it, it never had a glitch. It there wasn't a point where investors were terrified or disgusted both with the company and probably more so with themselves for being, you know, for being so silly to swallow the hype. That those are the those are the opportunities that I always I always look for. Um and talking of which Gold had something of this going into uh, the the events of this year in that gold peaked in August 2020. I think I'm right saying it was August 2020. It wasn't 21 yet. It was August 2020. And then everything else just kept going. I think gold, really <laughs> gold, gold, you're making me old. And, and like <laughs> a month ago, no price gaps, like no, you know, the, the, a lot of people, I'm, it sounds superstitious when you talk about price gaps, but price gaps reveal moments of emotion where there was um, a news event before the market opened and the market's been unable to, to clear every point. It's just went boom, happy or boom, get me out. And I always believe that periodic micro resets go back and fill, fill gaps. Um, and so. You know, and so something like uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook had a, had a gap just below 200 bucks, but you'd have needed a magnifying glass on the chart when it was trading at 430. And, and if you saw it, you'd be like, nah, forget it. It's never going there. So gold was, was into, of course, it, it then gapped on, on Thursday or Friday with, you know, the, with the invasion. And so guess what, you know, it's been coming back down and I don't wish to bore you on, on gaps. Um, I, th I think if this micro reset were to, uh, if it were to be more meaningful, you'll just now walk us away. Oh, and then, uh, and continue, continue buying. But if it was to be more meaningful, I, I would look at the zeitgeist stock Apple and I would need to see some mean reversion in Apple, some serious mean reversion. And one of the tools I look at for no evident scientific reason, um, but I like 20 month and 40 month moving averages. They're slow. You know, it's the kind of wisdom of the tortoise versus the, the hair of today and the, you know, um, and why can't Apple trade at its 20, which is the average price of the last 18 months, you know, but that would be 130 and today it's like 167 or something, that, you know, so that's, that would feel like they've taken out some more of the risk in the marketplace. Anyway, that's random thoughts from a, an island which is becoming dark behind me. Yeah. Well, this is a um, the chart. This is for Canadians, right? And Canadians are, um, by their nature, often pretty obsessed with stuff like gold and oil, and and so maybe we can we can wrap up with some thought. You just you already sort of mentioned gold, but you didn't really give your thoughts on um, where it might be headed or what some catalysts might be. Maybe talk, maybe talk about gold, uh, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on weights. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, it went in the summer of 2020, I, um, I published a paper. Yeah, I'd, I'd been, I'd, I'd been in a mine cave. Um, and then I, I started to come back onto, you know, these platforms. 
and I, ca I called it the dawn of chaos. And again, it was a speculation about we've had four, four decades of, of rates just going down. Um, surely we must, let, let, let's, let's speculate on the reverse and how that would happen. And, and so I then played with the notion that, uh, not only is inflation a monetary phenomenon, but I believe it's a, it has a psychological component, which I, I tried to discuss and that actually, uh, what gets lost when we look at Weimar was it was a Germany after the war was a, a society very, very divided between North and South, between Protestants and whatever, um, so many shit schisms. And it, and really things really kicked up. There was a politician that could have been a unifying character in, in that tragedy. And he was assassinated. Um, in terms of their economic policy, economic, their economic policy reminds me a little bit of where China is. Germany. And, and again, I could spend too much time because you had the, maybe you had reparations, which was, Hey, um, transfer 50% of your GDP in terms of gold, boom, and gold on a gold standard was high powered money. So actually you were imposing decades. You were, you, you're saying you're going to be a serf, a serf to the allied vic victories because we're going to deny you the ability to, to grow. And so you can see how the, the Germans went, well, we are the powerhouse when, when the rest of the world grows, they need our innovation. We, we, we build the machines that. You know, uh, so why do we know it's coming? We've had this atrocious war. We can actually, we can spend big on, on the, on the public sector and, we can, and infrastructure projects because we'll be able to pay for it as the world checks in and prosperity reemerges. And what they missed was the the depression of 1920 and 1921, which people forget about, which denied them the opportunity to get that huge lift. I feel China's a little bit like that with, you know, it, it's really, it, it massively, it, it entertained the property bubble after 2008 as a means to maintaining GDP growth targets, which keep the CC part, CCP party legitimate. And it could keep those growth rates, uh, which were being threatened by the, the, the silent def depression in the rest of the world. And so you can see a point where that just breaks. Anyway, uh, gold, um, so the idea of chaos, um, the decade of the seventies we, we touched on was chaotic. Um, and we talked about what happens with chaos. You get energy crisis, you get sovereigns invading other countries. These things are now happening. you saw gold's initial reaction. And that was coming from a level where gold was like no hype, no expectation, no ownership. Um, and so as a disclaimer, I, for no particular reason, but I, I ended up with a, almost like a, uh, a silent trust, which is crammed full of gold and silver ETFs and, and junior mining things. And thankfully I don't really look at it. Um, and, and so I, actually I do look at it cause I'm, I'm not why I, I look at it every day. 
<laughs> you don't do anything about it when you look at it, though. Yeah. <laughs> if I was allowed to do anything, I would have, I would have sold everything about it. <laughs> two months ago. I don't know. Read only access. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think more and more chaos is, is chaos. The, the genie of chaos is, um, it is, is written large. Um, the tragedy of, of the U S where it's, it's a, it feels when people tell me, when I read history books and they tell me Germany was a divided nation, America feels like a, a divided nation, which is only getting more divided. You know, when you've got commentators, did you see the thing where there was a, a right wing, I mean, not an extreme, a Republican convention and the audience were shouting, they're chanting, Putin, Putin, Putin. I mean, whoa, where are we? And yeah, so chaos is out of, out of the bottle and the only asset that don't, oh, I would, you're not going to like me saying this, go to stupid waste of time. It's just <laughs> dumb, <laughs> dumb shit, you know, uh, but that's why when society uh, becomes disorderly, the dumbest asset becomes the thing you need to, it becomes the, the talisman, it becomes iconic. You know, just now with order in the Fed, we trust, forget that baloney, that's going to change. Wait till you think these guys are complete jerks. Yeah. You're going to change your icons and it's going to be gold until order is reimposed. Like you say, until uh, Jimmy Carter is kicked out and a new regime comes in. Uh, and I give Jimmy a hard time. I think I'm right in saying that it was Carter that appointed um, Volker. Volker. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm pretty sure Sam, I'm pretty sure Reagan wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. yeah. And th both actually are to be credited because um, Jamie could have a, probably did appoint him, but the new president would have been easily within his rights, you know, to get rid of him and didn't. So, but it was a, uh, so, so, so society will have to reach a stage where it's like, okay, enough with the chaos. Okay. Give me sensible people. You know, just now it's going, Hey, let's try Trump. Who knows? You know, Hey, <laughs> that didn't work. Let's, let's try this really old guy that we don't even know if he's alive. Biden. And I'm like, okay, that's not really working. You know, let's keep spinning. The, we're in a spin the, spin the bottle society. That's good for gold. So that's good. <laughs> you asked me a, you asked me or about rates. rates. Yeah. Rate, rates the only engaging thing I can say. And my, my point is not to try and convert people. I, I, my system was always, again, cult-like. I was seeking a contentious posture that could go on and become accepted as the prevailing belief system. Right. And that's how I'd seek to make money. So. And then one of my, my cult is one of absurdity and I, and I, so I, I pursue creativity over logic. That's, that was always my in, um, the, our industry does logic, um, and, and just assumes creativity. You have to work at creativity, creative, there's a creative part of the brain. There are trigger points. So you have to work at That's, that's what I, that's what I do. Um, and, and so I always say, Hey, listen, if just about every logical men, like big investor believes, uh, bonds are busted. Uh, bonds are overvalued because of the fed, because of quantitative easing that we have inflation, it's not going away and bonds are busted. And 
I just want to say to people, so I, I want to, again, use the language of what I, I wrote in 2006. In January 2006 to my clients, I said, if you think the future is inflationary, if you think gold's going to 3000 bucks, and back then gold would have been, I want to say gold would be about $750. Um, I tell you to reach that promised land today, you should own 10 year treasuries. And it's like, the power of paradoxical thinking. And what I was saying is you need a profound deflationary event to empower, embolden, to create a revolution in, in monetary, uh, affairs of central banks before you could get that escape speed to hit those, those price levels. And so if we're going to have a profound deflation, which changes their behavior, then you got to own the duration asset. And, and that came, that came to pass. So I, when I, so let's deal with things we, we know, so let's not speculate. We know that 10 year treasuries peaked at 16%. I want to say July, 1982. Uh, and if you go. And that's such a long time ago that it's kind of, we're deadened to the fact that the Federal Reserve had raised interest rates into uh, almost the deepest GDP contraction since the Second World War. Uh, It deadens you to the logic that by 1982, inflation was well under control. Every month it was coming in lower and lower and lower and lower. But the, the conscious mind of the many was still conscious of what had happened in the seventies and was therefore intolerant of change, you know, and, and I gave this example of Michael Steinhardt, who as a brilliant genius manager, uh, was buying treasuries and losing money because he was early and he was being sued by his clients for style drift. So to my mind, 16% in the face of pure logic, which says you got to be buying and yet everyone was, people were suing Michael Steinhardt tells me that turning points are defined by absurd, something absurd. And so that was absurd then. And so for me, I would speculate that, 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 that perhaps we, we persist in seeing uh, inflationary prints that they don't go away, that they, they persist. And despite that treasury bond yields could go back to 40 basis points, if not below that we, and that would be the absurdity that would then, that would tell me right now is the time. Um, do I really care about that? I don't know because at 2%, okay, two to, to point to point four depends how many bonds you make, but uh, to, how, how leveraged you are for the return. Um, but I do think regardless of that, I think you will probably get to those levels. I think the catalyst for those levels will be a profound economic weakness out of China that people will put, put aside that their fears for the print and inflation for, oh my God, what's happening in China. I fear that China will respond, um, in a in a way that Taiwan did in the, uh, the tiger, Asian tiger crisis. So in 1997, uh, Taiwan, despite having no foreign denominated debt, despite running current account surpluses, trade surpluses, it devalued its currency by 20%. It was a kind of, it, it was Dadaism. It was an act of kind of, I, 
defiance against economic logic, but it was like, Hey, look, if all the brothers are going down, um, you know, we've got to get, we will not give them the, the unfair advantage. We we're going to take our currency down as well. Um, and I think a, a 20% devaluation of the renminbi is exactly the wrong thing. I mean, but the problem with the world is the renminbi should be 20%, if not 40% more valued highly. But if they, if they, if their economy begins to unravel a bit, I think we just go. Cool. So we got a deflationary they, shock there that, that precipitates an inflationary shock. Yeah. 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 So that's all, again, all I'm doing is that I'm, I'm trying to create cartoon pictures, which may unlock some creativity in, in everyone's logical minds, um, to try and uh, to be aware of what creative people are, are thinking and doing. Love it. Yeah. It's definitely the, uh, exogenous shocks that we don't, we're not, you know, usually paying attention to, right. It's, it's the surprise around the corner of the, it's the page 16 story. Yeah. Well, that, you, I mean, who yeah. would have thought about it? You know, <laughs> who would have thought that could happen? Who would have, well, no, that was right. my, back in, my franchise was back in 2010 or 2011. <laughs> yeah. We're so, we're so busy looking inward, right? We're not. We don't, we don't see the, that, that, you know, this country across the Pacific is actually so connected with our system and with our, with our, you know, consumption and our way of life and so many different aspects that, 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 and how it could actually have that kind of an impact. I think, you know, people were looking at the Evergrande situation you know, it hasn't really affected us. It's just a, a canary in a coal mine though, perhaps. Right. Yeah. I, again, it's investors, you, you have to do two things. You have to marry uh, creativity with logic. And so the creativity is, 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 is assigning yourself that, that task every now and again, what is the most absurd and the most unlikely thing that could happen? You know, for most people just now, it would be treasuries going back to point four. That just seems really hard to conceive like, or treasuries going zero or going negative that, you know, really hard to conceive of that happening. So you should sit down with a blank paper and say, well, how, how would that happen? And then work back to the present. Maybe you, you might still conclude that it's not going to happen, but the conjecture that you've unleashed, uh, in your mind and the, the kind of alternative, the alternative paths that uh, we, we might have to undertake, you become more conscious of that and, and, and yeah. better equipped to deal with those. the scenario analysis. Actually, Annie Duke talks about that in some of the decision-making and creativity around decision-makings and the, and the, uh, implications of decisions and the counterfactual and all that sort of stuff where you're pursuing those creative endeavors to understand the global situation more fully with all the ramifications beyond your expectations, obviously the absurdities. Mm -hmm. And I, I get a bit of a, I get an open pass on that. I'm allowed to be absurd. I'm allowed to be silly. I, I live a silly <laughs> life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's part of your brand. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's my with, with another, this well, speaking, speaking of your brand, you've been so kind with your time. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure we're getting close to wrapping up. I, I also, there's a couple of things you mentioned a book. So it's coming out. Can you give us a little teaser on, you know, just to get the buzz going for what, what it's about or what the, the topic of conversation will be or. Oh, I mean, Hey, I like, I'm the guy ask girls, what's the worst thing about guys? They, they want to talk about themselves all the time. It's all about me, <laughs> all about me, baby. 
Uh, I love it. It's it's a it's pitched as a a celeb memoir. It's it's this is not how to get rich trading stocks. Okay, this is um, you know I came from a housing project with crime and whatever, and I ended up in this billionaire paradise of St. bars A to B, and then the scrapes. Um, you know, the events, the trials, but, and tribulations, uh, you know, a, a bit of, um, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, like when he discusses going to, uh, United by United Bulk Privé in Geneva and just, he describes the foyer and I've been there, you know, that book resonated. I'd been there. I'd seen that. I'd done all that. I hadn't done, I hadn't done the loops. Um, uh, but, um, you know, there's, there's, there's many a tale, but it's, um, is it got rejected by the Schwager publisher? Like we, we only do finance books. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> but you will, you know, you yeah. this finance embeds it because it's my engagement with finances. Uh, the voices in my head. I sometimes I, I I've always played with the notion of being uh, a paranoid schizophrenic. Maybe I am, you know. Um, but I could can. Being a chart whisperer, I could conceive of story again. Stories and conjecture would come out of charts, and then I, I would, and then I would insist on taking uh, positions. And position size would be determined by the amount of research and ownership that we could really take on an understanding. And assigning probabilities would determine. But we would, even with the, I always wanted to have a tiniest little position, a bit like Jesse Livermore. There's nothing like ownership to again attack the the neurons in the brain and get them kind of whizzing in a different cycle. Um, so it's, 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 it's all of that in terms of when, I mean, who knows, and um, I, I've got my Hollywood editor, I've got my Hollywood agent. We're trying to kind of hook it all up together, but the books, the book's done and you know, it's, it's going to be out by the end of the is, year. Is, is rock, is the rock cast is the lead role in the, in the movie, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm just looking at your, your fitness level like these a, days. Yeah. And you know, maybe, maybe he's a little heavy, but yeah, Brad Pitt's better. You're right. That's yeah. Give me a job. Better Brad Pitt. You're right. Yeah. Better call. So, so the other thing I do want to ask you is you talk about your place in Bart's a lot, but what's the name of it? What's the website? Where can people go and, and, yeah. and, and book their book, their flight and get out to see you? I'm, I'm sure it's a. You know, it, it has a certain, uh, people can make their own cost decisions, but you know, people on yes. who are listening, to this can, can probably afford it. So tell us a bit about the, the project BART and what it's called and, um, you know, all that stuff. Well, thank you. That's kind of, it's, it's Blanc Blue. Um, so even our American cousins could, they, they kind of get Blanc Blue is blue, white, um, blue and white, um, it is, you know, is Ralph Lauren, it's like a Ralph Lauren picture board over, over shack by the sea. And that's the emotion. Um, I really, you know, that my clients are, are rich. Um, one of my projects maybe for tomorrow is I've got this, uh, swimming pool under construction for the next project. And is it trompe, trompe, uh, what, what, how would I say soak the rich? Would that be trompe the rich, the rich? How would I say that in French? Uh, yeah, that's pretty close. I think trompe les riches. Yeah, trompe yeah. les riches. And so I'm going to get, I'm going to get a, a spray can and I'm going to write that on the cement of the swimming pool 
and this and rich people are going to come and pay a lot of money to stay here. Yeah, like, <laughs> but uh, but it's it's Blanc Blue. Um, I'm trying to create a a brand so Blanc, and we're building Blanc Blue too, which is Blanc. So we have Blanc Blue Original and Blanc Blue Privé. I hope to have Blanc Blue the you know uh, La Plage, Blanc Blue La Falaise, that kind of thing. Yep. And and it's Blanc Blue Saint Barts. It should come up if you go to HughHendry.com. There's a okay. way of hitting that that site. Um, so that that's that truly they are. This is a tiny island, so it's a bit like your crypto thing with the 21 million units that they can't, <laughs> can't build any, you can't build any more same bars. You have a reverse engineering where the, the building permits are getting tougher and tougher and tougher. So the house that I built and completed in 2015, I, I, even with the same footprint, I'm not, I'm not allowed to do the same. I can build less and less. So that's okay. in a world, presumably where money is still going to be widely available because we have all these issues and confrontations, you know, and you saw what happened to the euro, uh, if the euro goes to, to parity, which I think is a possibility, the dollar, then, you know, St. Bart's property prices just got, you know, 10% cheaper and our customer base are, well, our Americans, you know, I'm pricing in dollars and, and my expenses are in euros. So I, I gave a lot of consideration to being in St. Bart's. Um, but Blanc Blue, please uh, ch- check out Blanc Blue. Um, well, do you? I'll do. You're, you're seeing. Well, I mean, it costs a fortune. Something person. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I figured so. I'm, I'm going to save up. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, where can they find you? Yeah, where? Yeah, where can everyone find you on your so, building your social tribe? Hmm. Uh, so Hugh Hendry official is. Would you believe I have an Instagram? <laughs> Spent too much time on my Instagram account. Showing pictures of guitars and cars and, but you know, quotes and thinking and charts and, and the like, uh, twi- Twitter's where I should be, where you, where you find me, uh, Hendry underscore Hugh. Um, and, and we have fun there. Um, and I'm trying, I'm trying to recreate again, being the cult. So, um, I was the cult leader with my hedge fund. I would be detached from my team. I'd listen to music. I'd look at charts. I, and then I have light bulb moments and I'd come out and. The, the one thing when you've had inspiration, the one thing you desire more than anything else is to share it, to share it with other people that you respect and have them either confirm or chip away and send you back. And I've discovered that with Twitter, it's like, I, I have this new team, you know, I drank way too much tequila on Friday night and I, you know, some friends staying who don't normally stay on the island. And so I miss my publishing deadline. I wake up the next day, my head is pounding and I'd yet to finish these calculations for, for uh, changing like British gas in their thermal unit per price and sterling and change that into a Henry Hub dollar basis. I could not get my mind to function. What I, I, I know what to do. Ask a friend. I go on Twitter and you know, someone gives me the answer. So I'm building a cult there. Um, I'm going to, I'm. I'm going to move also to a, a closed chat platform, which really will try and attract people who want to, uh, it'll be like, we'll badge you and get you participating really as if you were in a hedge fund and you're, you're presenting, um, stock ideas. And if you get a stock into our virtual portfolio, then there'll be positive consequences. So I kind of want to attract kind of kids into that, but I'm going to price for that. 
people with anger to say, I'm a con because I'm pricing, but my time is precious. So, but you, you see all those details if you're following me on, on Twitter or on Instagram. But of course, um, I put out a, a podcast week, the, the podcast I was referring to. Yeah. You can watch that on YouTube. Again, the same name, Hugh Entry Official. And, and it's also on Spotify and Apple. I think it, I call it the acid capitalist. Oh, uh, I love that. I said, yeah, yeah, less of the magic mushrooms. <laughs> you're on there with your buddy, uh, Chris Sweeney. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Chris, which I believe, uh, is, is a journalist and actually yeah. he, he wrote, he wrote the, the first copies of the book. And so he wrote for one of these, um, it's called the sun. It was called, does it exist today? I'm not sure. I think it was closed the sun, but it was the most popular newspaper, sensational kind of journalism. But there's, there's an, there's an art, they say there's an art to playing the piano badly. Like you actually have to be really good at it. And there's an art to that form of journalism. And the art is it's very, it's pacing. You're like, you read it. And I wanted a book that you would read it. You read it almost on one sitting. You wouldn't want to put it down. And Chris brings that. And you need subtitles to understand because it's impossible with his Scottish yeah. accent. <laughs> he, he has a naivete and he's just good for sit for setting, for setting me up on my, I just, it's like these, the shows that I do are like financial jazz. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but at the end we have, we have, we have two hours and then I cut it to about one hour and so, so it's a lot of fun. Kind of it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank it's you. good fun. Thank you. Well, Hugh, to say that, that this wasn't enlightening, that would be absurd. Huh. Oh. Well, I'm going to go because the mosquitoes are killing yep. me. Yeah. Uh, exactly. well. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to close all my windows. That's an other well, you to that. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I'm going to stop Super the recording. Hugh. Yeah. Let's do this again soon. Thank you.